As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Killers, we are back. There's been such a response to Professor Nash's first installment of the Claire Booth Luce biography that we wanted to have. We're having a two-parter anyway, but everyone wanted to have the second part out, part come out right away. So here we are in week two, part two of our study of our examination of Claire Booth Luce, the American Renaissance woman. And like I say, we couldn't have a Professor Nash book discussed unless we had Professor Nash here, your favorite Buzzkill historian. Professor, how are you? I'm doing great. Perfectly logical to have me here to talk about my book. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not not a bad idea. <laughs> not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. I, I, honestly, I'd have to think about it, but I'm probably the best person to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and the thing is, so many people might think, why on earth would you do a two-part show on Claire Booth Luce? But... As we're finding out, and as I think, and as, as the reaction shows, definitely worth an examination in this fashion. Yeah, I mean, I would argue we're in the, even in a two-parter, we're not really doing her life any justice. No, for that, I think you really need to read the book. Yeah, but I really can't imagine trying to cram all this into one episode. It would be it'd be too ridiculous. shallow. It'd be too it would be, shallow. Yeah, it would be painting with a with a paint roller. Okay, so we but when we left Claire Booth loose, she had, had done almost everything a human could do, and she's still <laughs> only not even forty yet, right? Uh, and this, she's right in the middle of World War II. Been been to Burma and the Middle East, and been to Europe, and, and also been to China. Almost everywhere, you almost every theater that, that she needed to go to. But as you were saying, her journalism was started. As you were saying at the at the end of the first part show, part one show. Her journalism was sort of trailing off in terms of quality and right. impact. Yeah, I would say she's, or maybe she plateaued, or she was sort of running into the wall. I mean, it clearly she wasn't going to go any much further with this. It, it was not. It was not one of her greatest talents. Clearly, but she left us with this great line: "She would not be idle for long." No, in fact, I would say not even weeks. So she went in yet 
another direction? Uh, yet another direction. So in the fall of 1942, she decided to run for the United States Congress. Yeah. In Connecticut's 4th District. Okay. So if people are thinking Connecticut, like a lot of wealthy New Yorkers, her residence was across the border in Connecticut. Oh, okay. In yeah, Fairfield yeah, yeah. County, yeah. which is the part of Connecticut which is closest to New York City. And people still do that. People, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of people commute. So it's places like um, Darien, Bridgeport. Yeah. Places like that. Yeah. Not uh, she exactly lived in the most poverty-stricken place. No, not at all. And she and her husband, Henry, had a big mansion in Greenwich. And this was not, by the way, this was, in case people are curious, this was not carpetbagging. She genuinely was a resident yeah, in Connecticut right, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know had, had genuinely established her residency there for quite some time. So if you're wondering, like, why would she do this, right? Why, you know, she's been active in politics as sort of a speaker, an activist, but she'd never run, never run for office at any level. Why would she do this? By the way, it was the seat that had been held briefly between 39 and 41 by her then stepfather. Her mother had married this doctor, last name Austin. Oh, right. Okay. Who okay. actually represented that district and then lost the seat to a Democrat. So in a way, it's, it's, there's some sort of, I guess, poet, some poetic justice here that she's pursuing a seat that had been occupied by her, her stepfather. In any case, she, I think, like I said, I think she realized her war journalism was a dead end. And she wanted to do something meaningful, especially now the United States is at war. Keep in mind, a lot of people in this period are, are caught up in the patriotic fervor. They want to sure, see what they can sure, help yeah. out. I think that it's genuine in her case. She secured, and by the way, and she did not have to sort of force her way in. The Republican Party in Connecticut had been pursuing her for months. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. They, okay. Because they, they remember that it's it's a seat held by a Democrat. They wanted a strong challenger, and so they immediately thought, "Wow, she would be great, right?" For all the reasons, for the, all the obvious reasons, right? Name recognition, her intelligence, her knowledge of world affairs, her speaking ability, her looks. I mean, in a way, she's sort of an ideal candidate. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they really had to sort of work on her in, in that summer. She was reluctant at first, but then she decided it was, it was a good move. So she sought the Republican nomination. She ran a very good campaign. She hired a terrific staff, but she barely won the general election. She barely won the seat in November of 1942. And what's ironic, this is a, a labor-heavy district. There's a lot of industry, including right. war industry. right. In the uh, Connecticut 4th District, lots of the unions are very, very strong, lots of working class, white ethnics. She won because of the socialist candidate. Oh, a third party. <laughs> there was a third party candidate, and the socialist, what do you know, did very, very well in the working class districts. Yeah, right. And peeled off votes from the incumbent Democrat. And yes. Gave the seat to the Republican Claire Booth Luce. Yes. Now, this. I, I hate to say this, but of course, this happens a lot even in modern day it's, in contemporary America. Yeah, and it's constantly up for discussion, and for good reason, right? It's it's, it's a great conundrum, right? It uh, is a very right? big conundrum. In other words, like how far do you go with your protest vote? How yeah. how loyal should you be to a mainstream person when you're not when you yourself are not mainstream, right? All those sorts of issues uh, come come up a lot. In this case, even though she was about as anti-socialist as you could be. She owes her seat to the socialist <laughs> who peeled off thousands of votes. And by the way, just for the record, this makes her the first congresswoman ever from the state of Connecticut. Oh, right. Okay. There had been several women in Congress before her. She's not right. the first. Jeanette Rankin was the first. They were still few in number. A lot of women 
were in Congress because their husbands were congressmen and they died in office and they continued their terms. Right. That that was that was very, very common. Very common yeah. But you women were were had a token presence in Congress in this period. Well, then how did she do in Congress? I would say overall she did pretty well. She partly because of her fame and her clout, she was given a, a even though she's a, f- a freshman. You know, Congress works on the committee system. Right. And right. when you're a freshman, you typically don't get good committee assignments. You get put on the, I don't know, Parks and Recreation or, or whatever. Yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. the, the, the equivalent, right? You, She is put on the Military Affairs Committee, which is the forerunner of today's House Armed Services Committee. One of the most, oh, sure, especially, yeah. <laughs> do, I, do I need to add, especially during a world war, kind of an important committee. The only reason she was not put on the Foreign Affairs Committee is because there were already two women on the Foreign Affairs Committee. That's what she really wanted. But uh, this is not too shabby to be on the Military Affairs no, Committee. No, no, no. In Congress, where she serves two terms, mm-hmm. so she's there from 43 to 47, she tolerates some insane sexism. Yeah, I can She imagine. quickly becomes a very popular Republican speaker. In fact, already in the next campaign in 44, she's crisscrossing the country speaking for other candidates. And remember, she's just a freshman. Sure. Right? It's unheard yeah, of. Yeah, it's yeah, unheard yeah. of. Yeah. She's very, very effective in debate. She's also a very hard worker, would you say. She's not sort of a showboat, right? She doesn't just go for the publicity. She does the hard work. She does the prep. She attends the committee meetings. She asks hard questions. She's, she's, a, she, she's not a backbencher, right. put it that way. Right. Well, I mean, let me just ask this one question because I think a lot of people who listen to the first show and listen to this show will notice that she moves from career to career to career. But she's not a shallow butterfly moving no, from career correct. to career. And no. everything that she does was no, it's, it's a great very point. good depth. It's a great point. No, and that, that's one of the amazing things about her is she quickly masters virtually everything she puts, yeah. gets, gets her hands on. And she works hard Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in all these endeavors. She puts in the hours. She does the prep. And she's, she's not a dilettante. Not at all. Right, right, right. And right. you know, so and, were, and she's for so for example, she's not only valued on the stump. Yeah, she's valued in committee and in Congress, and she helps. You know, she helps write legislation. She's in the minority, right? The Democrats sure, uh, sure. dominate the House, and so there are limited opportunities in that regard. But she's effective in debate. There are a lot of people who think she goes too far with her biting, sarcastic wit. She makes a splash very early on by criticizing the price the vice president Henry Wallace he had a he gave a speech and he had a plan for the post-war internationalization of civil aviation which yeah. she got up in her maiden speech uh, she denounced it as globaloni <laughs> that's she, pretty she coi- clever it is pretty clever she coined the term a lot of people were turned off by her so she was she was a polarizing figure i'll put it that way yeah and yeah, yeah. And, and, and opinion polls showed this like with eleanor roosevelt very few people neutral on claire booth loose Right, right, right. Either right. you loved her or you hated her. And lots of Democrats hated her, and lots of Republicans loved her, including men who were very, very sexist otherwise, thought she was a terrific uh, colleague to have. She was given a prime speaking slot at the 1944 Republican National Convention, where she attacked FDR in terms much stronger than was considered acceptable at the time. Especially during a war. Especially during wartime. Today, we would think it was... Very mild. <laughs> oh, okay, right, compared to uh, what at, we've seen. But at the time, yeah, you don't criticize the commander-in-chief at time of war. She went ahead and did it. Later on in the campaign, she actually said, this is a virtual quotation, Roosevelt was the first president we had who who lied us into a war because he didn't have the courage to lead us into it. Oh, ugh. 
No, she didn't say that at the convention, but she said it on the stump. But still, them's fighting words. That's yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. kind of ga- kind of thing that's going to get your 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 house firebombed if you're not careful. So it turned a lot of people off, but the the Republican base in the hallway just ate it up. She was a huge hit. The Republicans love the speech. Her first term, I should add, was in Congress was disrupted by personal tragedy. Her 19 year old daughter Anne, who was in college at the time, and ironically, from my personal standpoint apparently studying to become a foreign service officer. Oh, right. She was going right. to be a diplomat, and she was taking a course of study. We should say that when you mentioned from your personal standpoint, that's one of the things you were considering as an undergrad. Absolutely. Thank you for remembering that. Yes. Uh, I probably would have been, had, had, had the, if they would have had me, I would have been a diplomat instead of an academic. Anyway, so now these days I write, I write about diplomats instead. <laughs> anyway, so she was a senior at Stanford, and she died in a car accident January 1944. Claire Booth Luce was devastated, as you might imagine, devastation compounded by guilt, that she hadn't been there enough for her daughter sure, as sure. she was growing up. You, if, if you look at her whole biography, you can make a good argument that she never completely recovered from this emotionally. Not surprising, not uh, uncommon. You know, yeah, not exactly, not uncommon. It helped fuel a profound spiritual crisis, which within about a year and a half, is going to play a big role in her converting to Catholicism. Oh, okay. And she becomes a Catholic convert in early 1946, which, as you might imagine, bewilders her Presbyterian husband. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't get much more away from Presbyterianism than Catholicism. Yep. Uh, but that's that's later. That's 1945-46, uh, under the tutelage of Fulton Sheen. She was narrowly re-elected to Congress in 1944, in late 44, early 45, she twice toured the European battlefronts, and in the spring of 1945, she also toured some of the recently liberated Nazi concentration camps. She was she was actually she was in, in Europe as a member of the Military Affairs Committee, tour, touring sure, yeah, the battlefronts, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. as a part of her job. But Eisenhower was very very careful, as listeners may be aware. Once the enormity of the Nazi crimes was starting to emerge, Eisenhower way ahead of his time, was concerned about what we call Holocaust denial. Yeah. That no one would believe this. And so he wanted as many eyewitnesses as possible. And so he actually approved orders that the entire Third Army. Yeah. So what, 100,000 men plus would be forced to visit the camps. Claiborne Lewis also visited the camps and, like most people, was deeply affected by it. We need to have a show on Eisenhower doing that specifically, by the way. I'm sure the, our listeners would... would yeah. Or yeah, maybe just the liberation of the camps. Yeah, yeah, great. yeah. We we haven't done that. Oh, we, that would be a great idea for for a show. Absolutely, yeah. it's great how we we and especially you. I think this is one of the first times I've suggested a new show. <laughs> we think up other shows during our recording of of, of other shows. It never ends. There's always <laughs> something new to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So she does effective work on issues thereafter, like atomic energy, and believe it or not, there's there's this. Once the atomic bombs are dropped and atomic energy and atomic weapons become a, a, a hot issue, there's this debate in the United States over civilian versus military control of the atom. Right, right. Which is, which is decided, and it's very controversial, and it's decided in favor of civilian control, and she's on the side of civilian control. Even though hmm. she's a, an extreme hawk in foreign relations in some other ways, she's actually pretty liberal when it comes to international control of the atom. Right, and she, if she, she's an early uh, proponent of international arms control at a time when a lot of people were not. 
even though later on she's going to have no trouble, for example, advocating preemptive war against the Soviet Union. So she's capable of great contradictions, as you may have gathered. But what do you know? Her heart was never really in staying in Congress. There's actually, I uncovered evidence in her letters. She enters Congress January 1943. In March of 1943, she's complaining to friends in her letters, I don't like Congress, I hate this job. Oh my! So all the while, still doing yeah, yeah, tons and, that, of hard and that's work. the thing. Yeah. Don't, don't don't confuse her performance with her with her uh, with how how much she liked the job. She really didn't. She she thought Congress was kind of a mess, and she's not the first to conclude that either. And that work is kind of difficult to do. Now it's kind of ironic as well. She steps away just as the Republicans briefly gain the majority in the House. Right. So she might have found the job a little more rewarding in that regard. But she converts in early '46 and announces converts to Catholicism. Sorry, con- yeah, sorry, converts to Catholicism in early 1946. At the same time, she declines to run for a third term, and they are connected. Oh, okay. Partly because she made, and it's a, I think it's a legitimate argument. It's not just a rationale. She argued that if she ran again, she would be accused of pandering to her Catholic voters. Ah, uh, lots and lots of Catholics. In that in, district. In that district, and she was afraid people would say that this was a political move, which, who knows? They, they may have accused her of that. Anyway, in, remember, she's a, in, 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 and there's a, actually there's a gap between her rhetoric and her action. Mm-hmm. It's familiar, actually. She's hardcore anti-Roosevelt, hardcore anti-New Deal, blasted at every opportunity. But when it comes to the actual specifics of like policies that she advocates, very liberal. Very liberal on immigration. Very right. liberal, uh, while in Congress, very liberal on race issues. She works hmm. very, very hard to integrate the daughters of the American uh, Revolution, by the way. Right, which she was a right, member. right. Very liberal on taxation. The spring of uh, 43, when she's new to Congress, she's basically at arguing for confiscation of all incomes above a certain level, like 100%. Right, now, right, as right. We talked right. about it in another show. They were very, very high, but she was perfectly okay with it. Yeah. And it's it's very striking. And she, for example, she opposed, unlike most Republicans, so she was even willing to go, go vote against, in case you're wondering, voting against the majority in her own party. She was opposed to some of the anti-labor legislation that was passed during World War II, like sort of uh, right. anti-strike type stuff. Partly, she's a clever politician. She knows she's got a liberal district, right? You know, it's not a, it's not a naturally conservative constituency she has. Right. So part right. of this is part of this is just practical politics. But I think even apart from that, overall, despite some of the appalling things she can uh, from time to time write privately, her views are are pretty. I'll say this. I'll say this. Her views on issues are surprisingly liberal for someone who's so conservative. Well, that's very interesting. Okay, so now what we're in we're in nineteen forty seven. Correct. She's free to do what? Typically for her, a little of everything. <laughs> this post war period, she writes a lot for magazines, but she fails to produce another good play. And it's interesting, and I'm pretty sure this is not unique to her, in part she blamed her conversion to Catholicism. Oh, okay. Because remember, her great success had been as a satirical playwright. Yeah. And she believed, and there were other. She was freaked out when other people told her that. Oh yeah, you know, I've seen that with other Catholic converts, and she's like, "What? Like, no, you don't tell me that." In other words, she felt like because of the way it changes your your philosophy and your outlook and mm-hmm. your behavior, mm-hmm. that it it sort of takes that satirical edge out of you. Ah, uh, and so uh, then, uh. so she found after world after she converted that 
she didn't have that edge that the the sort of witty nasty dialogue that she was so that sort of came so easily in the late 1930s now sort of failed her right right but so she does she does some writing she like for example she edits a book called saints for now where famous people were basically wrote essays about who their favorite saints were and actually did did rather well in 1952 mm-hmm. i think that came out she still did political activism she was a member of the china lobby Outgrowth of her ties with the Chiang Kai-shek regime from World War II, and also very much certainly in, in keeping with the views of her husband and his magazines, the China lobby, in case people don't know what that is. After World War II, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist regime was locked in a bitter civil war with Mao Zedong's communists, right, fighting right. for control of China. And the Truman administration, at a certain point, essentially said, "There's Chiang cannot be saved. Right? We're not. We're not. Yeah, gonna, yeah, we're yeah, we're yeah. not going to go to war." To, to save China. And this, on the Republican right, there was this group of people and sort of lobbyists and think tanks and publications called the China Lobby where they're pushing very hard for the United States to do more to pr- protect the Chiang regime. And, yeah. and also, by the way, just hammering the Truman administration for being soft on communism. So th- this gets very much wrapped up in the McCarthyism that you're going to see at, at roughly the same time. Well, and, and the phrase being soft on China... Right was, was common, right. or time. or also who lost China? Who right, right, right. After nineteen forty nine, when when the communists actually come to power, then there's a lot of hand wringing, and Democrats afterwards become very, very sort of uh, gun shy about not intervening overseas. And by the way, the loss of China in nineteen forty nine, in large part, sets the stage for our intervention in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Later. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah. they're they're very much connected in in this this, this Cold War, this nasty Cold War that's emerging with the Soviet Union after the end of World War Two. She serves up more rhetorical red meat at the Republican National Convention of 1948. Right. She wants, she at one point in the speech, she refers to Henry Wallace, who's running as a third party progressive candidate, calls him Stalin's Mortimer Snurd. Yikes. Which, Mortimer Snurd was the ventriloquist dummy for Edgar Bergen. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you can't get more insulting than no, that. No, it's, it's yeah. pretty insulting. She flirts with a, a couple of runs for the U.S. Senate, but most importantly, looking back, is in 1952 when the Luces back for the first time in years a winner in the form of Dwight Eisenhower. Right. Okay. Eisenhower, and it, it's partly the same struggle. Eisenhower, of course, the great World World War II hero, is running as a Republican in 1952, and he's an internationalist. His main competitor was Robert Taft of Ohio, who was still an isolationist, and the Luces yeah. were terrified that we would crawl back into our shell, quote-unquote, at, at exactly the wrong moment, right? When the, when the Cold War was happening, everything was on the line. So they got behind Eisenhower, a very shrewd move. They, they showered a ton of money on his campaign, hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's money. Yeah. And Claire also stumped hard for Eisenhower, as before. She even, at one point, filled in for Joe McCarthy on television. Oh, right. At the end of September 1952, oh, yeah. not one of her great moments. No, no, no. And I, I write about this in the book, and the book also includes one of the speeches she gave where she addressed the issue of McCarthyism. And by the way, in this regard, her husband, Henry, deserves much more credit because Time Magazine in particular, on a, on a couple of occasions, came out swinging against McCarthy long before it was safe to do so. Right. And once again, I always remember this movie, which people should see, called Good Night and Good Luck. Yes, yes, which very good. Which talks about uh, Edward R. Murrow in this regard. In any case... Her stance on McCarthy was essentially to be an anti-anti-McCarthy. Okay, now... In other words... Tell us what that means. So, yeah. So she acknowledged some of the criticisms of Joe McCarthy. Yeah. Right? The innuendo, the the smears, the the guilt by association, the red baiting, right? That he goes too far. 
she acknowledged those criticisms mm-hmm. and sort of nodded to them, but then and then came around to the position of, but the Democrats are much worse. Right. Okay. Okay. So that's what I mean by anti anti McCarthy. She she ends up in a roundabout way defending him, and she did by the way a fair amount of red baiting of her own. Yeah. Yeah. The way I put it in the book is if you ask the where did, where does she come down or where where should we place her in the history of McCarthyism? I, I describe her as more part of the problem than part of the solution. Yeah, okay, okay. Like, and by the way, she's in good company or bad company with many, many Republicans at the time. McCarthy, and it's, I always argue it's part of the problem with the term McCarthyism itself. Or this was not just about Joe McCarthy. There were McCarthy's all over the country. Yeah, yeah and there yeah, were McCarthy's yeah. before McCarthy. And there were state level several McCarthy's all over the place. But in any case, in Republican circles, she was again lauded for her great campaign work. So Eisenhower, as I'm sure people are aware, won big in 1952. He mopped the floor with Adlai Stevenson, the Democrat. Remember, the Democrats had controlled the White House for 20 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people you, forget you, that. Yeah, yeah, you can understand. You know, and the, the economy wasn't great, and people thought we were losing the Cold War, and there was some corruption in the Truman administration. So most, a lot of Republicans would have won. Even Robert Taft might have won. Who knows? And Eisenhower is very moderate. Yes, yeah, he's a moderate, and he's he's one of the first Republicans to figure out that what you do is you uh, domestically you make peace with the New Deal, because one of the reasons that Truman won in '48 is that his opponent looked like he was threatening to blow up the New Deal, and yeah. he, the New Deal was popular. <laughs> even Eisen, the, even Eisenhower had, had had his brain in gear. Yeah, yeah, he was he was a, a much shrewder politician than people give him credit for, certainly at the time. So then the question for the Eisenhower people is, how do you pay this huge political debt you owe to the Looses? You don't give a job to Henry Luce. You need him right where he is. Running the publishing Running empire. these magazines that are openly pro-Eisenhower. Yeah, yeah. By the yeah. way, uh, the staff at Time Magazine in the fall of 1952 came very close to openly revolting wow. from within because they were so unhappy with how biased the coverage was of the Eisenhower campaign. Wow, that's saying something. <laughs> it's saying a lot. Yeah. You obviously don't give Luce another job in the administration. So what's the next best thing? You give Claire a job. Mm. In a very sexist way, the first job Eisenhower offered Claire Booth Luce was Secretary of Labor. Ah. Which I think it's sexist because that was the only cabinet post that had ever been occupied by a woman, Frances Perkins under Roosevelt. Yeah. It's not because Claire had any great experience in this realm, right? It's like, no. it, it, it was, it's very patronizing. She turned it down to her credit. So, you re- so if you can't reward the husband, you reward the wife. Mm-hmm. And again, you see the conundrum of the ambitious woman. Right, you want a top post in an administration, but in this period, you're not going to get one because you're a woman. The right. only way to do that is if you are connected with Henry Luce, and so once again, you have no choice but to depend on a on a man to get ahead. So, what was her reward? Her reward was ambassador to Italy. She was not the first ch- female chief of mission, which is the technical term, right? They were yeah. both ministers and, and ambassadors. I'll just use ambassador for shorthand. She was not the first female ambassador of the United States that sent abroad. There were actually four before her, and I could recommend a very good book on that subject. <laughs> Professor Nash is, of course, talking about his own book, <laughs> Breaking Protocol. I, I am subtle, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> my, my students always accuse me of uh, pop-up ads. <laughs> that, was, that was a pop-up ad. The, but this, she was the first woman being sent to a major ally. And, and people should know, yeah, Italy is not Great Britain or France or Germany necessarily, but it is Italy. It's a yeah. major country in Europe on the front line of the Cold War. It had an enormous communist party working inside and a socialist party as well. There was lots of people who were scared that this country would fall to communism. It's one of the reasons why sure. we launched one sure. of our biggest 
CIA covert actions to influence the election in 1948 in Italy. We showered enormous amounts of money, some yeah. of which uh, the Luces may have raised. We don't know for sure. Lots of bribes paid to Italian politicians, and, and it worked. The Christian Democrats did very well and, and, and won the election. In any case, it's a major country, but it's a controversial pick, partly because of her Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States was still very, very strong in 1953. Right, 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 gonna, right, right. Seven years down the road, it's going to cost JFK lots of votes in 1960. Lots of people thought that she would not be loyal to the United States, that she might you know, um, use her influence to bend American policy in a way that benefits the Vatican, which yeah. sounds absurd, I know, but that's what people worried about. People also thought she was too partisan, probably more legitimate worry. And people worried about the fact that she was a woman. Yeah. Fewer Americans were opposed. Like I said, that precedent had already been set. There were Italians, especially in the Italian Foreign Office, who were insulted by this. One top Italian Foreign Ministry official, when he found out that she was being nominated for the position, he said, and I quote, what are we, Luxembourg? Oh, Lord. Which is a quote because that's a place where he had sent Pearl Mesta, the hostess with the mostess. Yeah, that's right. Who we also talked about. Who we also talked about. Very controversial pick, but the idea was, especially in a very macho culture like Italy, if you send a woman here, that doesn't mean we're a second-rate power. That means we're a third-rate power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even though it wasn't intended that way. No. And as as we'll see, it's actually going to work out rather well for the Italians in some ways, but they they thought it was a slap. The prime minister and other high-ranking Italians were obviously okay enough with it that they let it go ahead. By the way, countries are always free to reject an ambassador, right? They don't have oh, to Oh, I issue. didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, and normally, right. what, the way it works is you clear it ahead of time behind the scenes. Right. So that right, you avoid okay. the embarrassment. And so, usually they are accepted, as it was, as it was in this case. She performed, once again, rather well. If you look at the internal ratings from the State Department, she didn't get the highest marks, but she got above average marks pretty yeah, much across the right, board. Okay. She was criticized for her staunch anti-communism, certainly in Italy, but it was U.S. policy, right? Her job was to try and steer Italy away from the left, and she did that in some rather heavy-handed ways, but she, was, she wasn't making policy, but she was executing it. That's what ambassadors do, and she... And she did a pretty good job of it. Again, it, it, we, we can assume that she's, this is one of the things that she works very hard oh, yeah, at. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's, there, you know, and, that, and that's important, too, because remember, she's a political appointee. We have a right. lot of political sure, appointees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To this day, a lot of political appointees are, the most, in the most extreme cases, they're embarrassments. And like, for example, during their confirmation hearings, they, they reveal that they know absolutely nothing about the country that they're being sent to. That's happened many, many times, including recently. Mm. You know, we've mm. had to pull people in recent years because they're just so embarrassing in the United States. Not in her case. She... Works like a dog, and she mastered all of the issues. She learned a little bit of Italian. She played a major role in solving the Trieste crisis, which was a major international crisis between Italy and Yugoslavia in the post-war period, which easily could have led to war between the two countries, which was not in the U.S. interest, (laughs) to put it mildly. It was a very, very tough issue, and she played a huge role in getting it solved, and the way she did it is because she had access. And here's where the Italians really started to change their minds. Certainly official Italians started to change their mind about her. Because unlike most ambassadors, she had a direct line to the White House. She could call the president and get him on the phone. Or if she wanted to go and have a personal meeting with the Eisenhower to talk substance and not just for a five-minute photo op, which is what all ambassadors get, for an actual substantive meeting, she could do that. 
And so the Italians quickly realized that they had, in some ways, maybe the most effective ambassador they ever had. Hmm. I mean, you always have to worry about the issue of, what do they call it? Localitis. That's right, yeah. Right, yeah. where become, she becomes... Or going almost, native. Yeah, going yeah. native. She be, um, becomes a stronger advocate for Italy in the United States than for the United States in Italy. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. think that became a huge problem in her case. Yeah, I think she's sort of, like a lot of ambassadors, by the way, I think she sort of, sort of got into that gray area in the middle. But she survived four years, which is a typical, a typical stint as an ambassador. She even survived being poisoned by her ceiling. Okay, now, Professor, you, you, damn it, you've done it again. <laughs> you, at just the point where we need to take a break for sponsorship, you, you're going to leave us with this great, another cliffhanger, a sort of a ceiling falling in, I know. maybe. It, it <laughs> sounds like away. the Amityville Horror or something yeah, know, like that, right? So, but we do have to go for a sponsorship break, so we will do that and come right back and learn what this cliffhanger, how this cliffhanger turns out. Back in a sec. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, we're back, Buzzkillers, with your favorite Buzzkiller, Professor Philip Nash, who's talking to us about Claire Booth Luce, American Renaissance Woman, his latest book. And before we left you for sponsorship break, Professor Nash had just said, and I'm quoting here, that Claire Booth Luce even survives in Italy, as an Italian bastard in Italy, even survives being poisoned by her ceiling. Now, I can only respond to that by saying, Say what now? <laughs> Say what now? <laughs> WTAF. <laughs> yeah. So by 1956, she's experienced in a whole bunch of severe but not easily explained health symptoms that I believe require her hospitalization at a certain point. Huh. She became super, super sick. The CIA got involved investigating the possibility that she was being poisoned. In fact, there's actually one point where, you know, she said months earlier, she said, this coffee tastes like poison. Ah. It turns out she was right. So the CIA looked into it, and they found the culprit. So for her entire adult life, she spent hours in bed in the morning doing her work. She'd mm. take breakfast in bed. She'd, re she'd do her correspondence in bed. She'd read memos in bed, and she'd dictate all those things for hours in bed. Yeah. Lots of people do this. Uh, yeah. Uh, especially in this time period. Politics. That yeah. was her thing. So... Her residence is called the, the Via Taverna, was from the 16th century. And it turns out that her ceiling had been painted with really old paint that contained arsenate of lead, which was typical back in old-timey old paint. 
and it was flaking and landing in her food. Oh. So she was being progressively poisoned by her ceiling. By the way, by the way we don't necessarily, it doesn't have to be huge flakes that you could see. It can, it can be almost microscopic. Correct, exactly. And would, and by, yeah, by the way, right. I'm pretty sure that uh, the, the floor above, I think there was like a washing machine or something that would vibrate. Uh, uh. And so it would shake this sort of paint dust. And, you know, it, it doesn't take much. But and, and you you know and you can just get a little dose every day, but sure. it's arsenate of lead. A little dab will do you. So <laughs> they, sorry, we don't mean to laugh, Buscos, <laughs> but it is. And it by is the way, remarkable. later on, even much later on, there were some snarky Times reporters who thought that this story was BS that was made up. Blah, yeah, blah blah. This has been confirmed by all sorts of different sources, including people in the State Department who worked for her. Yeah, 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 yeah. And by the way, and they did worry at first that this was deliberate, that she was being deliberately poisoned as an assassination plot. Turns out it was just her ceiling. That's what you get for living in old Italian palaces. And the moral of the story is, go get a nice new condo. (laughs) Yeah. So by the end of 1956, she does recover her health, right? They, They deal with the arsenate of lead problem. She is nevertheless tired and frustrated by the Italian situation, by the world situation, she, throughout her career, over and over again, she lapses into what can only be called alarmism. Late 56, okay. you've got the Suez Crisis and the Soviet invasion of, of Hungary at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's very critical of Eisenhower for not, I'll put it this way, when the Soviets invaded Hungary to crush the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, she was far more willing to risk World War III to help the Hungarians than the President or the Secretary of State were. Wow. Okay, so she's out there on the vanguard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and there's one point in a top-secret memo earlier in 1954, she advocates liberating China using nationalist Chinese forces and U.S. tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, So I would say there are times in her career where she does not reveal herself to be a terribly deep thinker when it comes to national security strategy. I'll put it that way. Right, right. But yeah, but she 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 was a super hawk. And she was she was concerned that Eisenhower was dropping the ball. In any case, she was going to retire. She was going to resign anyway because of her her health and her frustration and tired of tired of the job. So so she resigns in the end of 1956. Okay, now, now let's get let's get. Where is she age wise now? She is 53. Well, really, too early to retire. Retire. Sure. Yeah, we would say she's mid career in terms of yeah, her age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she turned it turns out after after resting up, she immediately seeks another post. There is some insulting talk within the Eisenhower administration about, for example, a job in the UN dele- U.S. delegation to the United Nations, which was a huge step down. And I, I argued in a piece I wrote online that uh, Eisenhower is not the only person to do this. Uh, throughout the post-war period, a lot of times women are sort of dumped in the UN as a way of, look at all the women we've hired in foreign policy, even though we give them not terribly important positions. We should mar- remind everyone that the UN was still... Pretty new. It was new. It certainly had more prestige than it does now. Nevertheless, after you've been ambassador to Italy, you deserve a much more prestigious and powerful post than that. And she she turned that down. She did accept, in 1959, she accepted a nomination as ambassador to Brazil. Mm -hmm. Arguably a step, step down in terms of prestige. The Senate approved her after a bitter fight, but she quit. After just three days. So technically, she never even took up the post. She never went to Brazil. She did prepare oh. assiduously, but she quit. And you might be asking, why? Yeah, I am. I was about to ask. Why. Like, why? Yeah, why would why? you do this? It's pretty clear that she changed her mind. That in okay. February 1959, the job sounded good. And by late April 1959, she didn't want it anymore. Her period of job preparation came at a low point for her emotionally. Her marriage was near collapse again. She was having recurrent health issues. 
Her walking away from the job, interestingly, later on she credited it in part to LSD. Okay, now, Professor, a little while ago, I responded to one of these facts by saying, say what now? So you're saying LSD as in acid? Chemicals play a lot of different roles in her life. So context, this is, LSD was discovered, what, 1943, I want to say. Yeah. It has not entered widespread use by this point. Mm-hmm. It is, well, <laughs> disturbingly, it's used as part of the CIA project MKUltra, where they right. are yeah, yeah, using yeah. it as a truth serum on unwitting victims with disastrous, tragic results. But there were also some of the top mental health professionals at the time were using LSD as part of treating their patients. Oh, Okay. So it has that legitimate aspect. It does. It does. It hasn't been, from that standpoint, it hasn't been sort of tainted by the counterculture, which is going to happen in the 60s. Yeah, gotcha. And by the way, just for the record, there's a very good article about this written by a journalism professor. Turns out through the 60s, both time and life devote amazing amounts of coverage and amazingly positive coverage to LSD, even after it's been adopted by the hippies. And it's possible that one of the reasons is that Claire and Henry were themselves big proponents ah. because they both used it. Now, they used it relatively sparingly Yeah, yeah, yeah. under the care of a psychiatrist. Right. But they were both big fans and it took it over a period of about three years and they kept notes of their experiences, some of which are in their papers in the Library of Congress. Holy cow. A trip on that. It was a historian. Uh, Wait a minute. What did you just say? You had <laughs> a trip on that? <laughs> sorry. Oh, <laughs> By the way, and if you look at the Claire Booth Loose papers, those were some of the last, surprise, surprise, some of the last of her papers to be released to the public. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, notes yeah, on yeah, the, notes yeah. on the LSD stuff. But that ha- has been available to some scholars for a long, long time, just not your favorite professor here. But there was the secondary stuff that, that makes it very clear. And by the way, if you're wondering, so who cares? Well, later in that year, she credited LSD with sufficiently rebuilding her psyche huh. such that she gained the inner strength to walk away from a job that she didn't want. Right, okay. That's what she did. Now, did her and Henry all, taking it together, did that help them, the, their relationship? No, good question. No, it did not. It, it helped her get through this latest rough patch in their marriage where he okay. wanted a divorce. Okay, okay. And she did not want a divorce, and she it was this long, well, I won't go into details, but this, it took months, this long, painful, she even attempted suicide by sleeping pill at one point. She was so unhappy. But they basically worked it out. She was a, she was afraid that she was too old to reestablish this kind of life she had with someone else. Sure, yeah. So, and then he was also ridden by guilt and bad public relations, etc. So he agreed to end his the affair he had been having with someone half his age, Lord Beaverbrook's daughter, by the way. Oh, All right. granddaughter. Anyway, British uh, history connection. There. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's your uh, there's your UK history quotient. Canadian too. Satisfied, yes. So yeah, so she she had a good experience with LSD. There's one point later on where she actually, by the way, she, she ran into Abby Hoffman in an elevator in You're the early kidding. 70s. I'm no. <laughs> <laughs> stuff never stops. I have, a foot, I have a footnote about this. And he was, of course, blown away that she had tried LSD. She said, I only took it once, which right, is a well, lie. She had yeah, taken yeah. it several times. She didn't want to give him the satisfaction of knowing that she had dropped acid like, like any hippie would later. Or maybe not like any, any any hippie would later. But she also has said at one point, basically, LSD's great, but but it's not for everybody. And and basically implying that, you know, we can't let the, the hoi polloi become acid heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, someone in the elite who takes it under the care of a, of a physician, that that's okay. 
So she was pretty hypocritical about this, <laughs> okay. especially once it became um, the hippie's drug of choice. So the last three decades of her life, unfortunately, are kind of an anticlimax, mostly may, uh, consisting of punditry, some politics, and the way she's sort of zealous. She introduced, it might have happened anyway, but she introduced Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon oh, that's at, a, at, a play, at a party at her apartment in 1967. Right, okay. She, you know, she she stumped for Goldwater in 1964. She lost her husband in 1967. He died of a heart attack in early 1967 okay. and was, you know, even though it was... By the way, they had, in the last years of their lives together, they had become friends, I would say. They were they were never lovers, and they never had a close, intimate bond again. But they, they became, you know, they had sort of a modus vivendi. They, they became friends, and she coped with le- le- loneliness for the rest of her life. She moved to Hawaii in 1969. They had been planning to retire to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Okay. They bought an amazing... I've actually been to the property. It's an amazing piece of property uh, to the east of Honolulu on Oahu. Basically, it's two acres of private beachfront property, which today is worth a pretty penny. She had a house built there. She uh, She... Ran what you might call sort of a trans-Pacific salon in the 70s and early 80s. People stopping over. Yeah, people like, you know, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon. They would stop by, breaking up the flight across the Pacific. She became fairly prominent in, in Hawaii social circles to the extent that she could. Hawaii then, as now, is dominated by Democrats, so there were some limits to what right, she could do right, in that regard. Okay. Well, any other, but any further political appointments? Yeah, really only one of note. She served... Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan, and sorry, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan on what's called PIFIAB, P-F-I-A-B. It's the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. Oh, you foreign policy people. The PIFIAB. PIFIAB. You, you and your yeah. acronyms. P-F-I-A-B. Yeah, neither of those roll off the tongue, I admit. <laughs> this was, so this was basically created by Eisenhower in 1956, sort of a body that had, by the way, its members had top secret security clearance. They got to see a lot of the good stuff, Mm -hmm. national intelligence estimates. But it was basically a body of outsiders to act as a double check on the intelligence community when the president felt it was necessary. Right, okay. So it's an advisory body on intelligence. And she she did a pretty good job. We have some information about her activity on this, even though a lot of it's hush-hush. She enjoyed having top access, but typically in the 70s and in the early 80s, she felt neglected by the Republican Party. She did desire to cut down on the long travel as she was getting older. She was in pretty good health, apart from cataracts. She right. had pretty, pretty good health right. through the 1970s. But she wanted to be closer to the center of things, so she moved back to D.C. and got a, an apartment at the Watergate Hotel in, or the Watergate Apartment Complex, I should say, in uh, 1982. She remained a staunch partisan Republican. She defended... Nixon during Watergate. Mm-hmm. She was a staunch defender of Nixon. She was part of the 25% of the Americans who stuck by Nixon. Wow. She was very harshly anti-detente. She was very much in favor of, a, of an intensified Cold War in the late 70s, right? Big critic of Jimmy Carter, not surprisingly, and a critic of the Great Society programs. But as I mentioned earlier, it's in the 70s, I would argue she comes, comes into her own as a staunch feminist. Okay, and this is a big but. To, to... Yeah, I mean, I mean... Up until this point, she's been feminist in lots of ways. Certainly, she's been feminist, a feminist of the deed, you could say, right, in terms of the yeah, way she right. leads okay. her life. But she would, had never been, had never jumped in with both feet. 
She does in the 70s. She writes a play that's published. It's, it first appears in Life magazine. It's a one-act play. At first, it's called A Doll's House, 1970. And then it's published. It's never performed commercially, but it's uh, published as Slam the Door Softly. Oh, right. Okay. And it is a hardcore, second-generation feminist tract. Wow. No longer, so con- I, I contrast it with what she writes in The Women, right, where the goal of the woman is to get her husband back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Doll's House 1970 slash Slam the Door Softly, Slam the Door Softly, rolls off the tongue as well, <laughs> She, the protagonist... Her victory is escaping her marriage, which is the sort of this misogynist right. nightmare. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I, to me, that's a very interesting turnaround. So and it's interesting. She's sort of ambivalent on the issue of abortion, in case people are wondering, right? She is a, she is a convert to Catholicism, but she is not hardcore pro-life, and she refuses to lend her name to hardcore pro-life causes in the 70s. And after Roe v. Wade, 1973, is when this becomes a cause celeb on the right. Sure. As we have found out recently. So... And it's really important to keep pointing this out because when you think of conservative women in the 70s, people always think of Phyllis Schlafly. Right. Right. Who led the charge and is the num- number one person responsible for the defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment in right. the 70s and early 80s. Claire Boothloose could not be any more different. Yes, she's on the right. Yes, she's conservative on a lot of political issues, but she is a feminist. She's in favor of the ERA. And in the book, I've got this great, I won't go into it, I've got this great transcript of a appearance she puts in on William F. Buckley's public television show called Firing Line, which you may recall. Uh, Oh, I recall it, A show that was on public television for 33 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was one of Buckley's most popular guests, and on this show in 1975, she goes on in arguing the the sort of the bumper sticker version is she argues that Jesus was the first feminist. Yeah, okay. And she does a great job. She basically runs circles around Buckley and insults him on his own show, yeah, yeah, even though yeah. they were good friends. And it, it, it's just a great sort of statement of her views. And it was, it was, it was a, a strong, strong version of, of women's liberation. We will try to get a clip of that on and to put on social media, but I can't promise. I, it, I'm pretty sure it's available. The Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford University has all that stuff. Right, okay. She dies of brain cancer in 1987 at the age of 84. And the... By far the largest, the, the, the vast majority of her sizable estate she uses to create what's called the Clear Booth Loose Program, which to this okay. day devotes huge aid to women in STEM fields, both studying as undergraduates and graduates and also funding professorships for women in, in STEM fields. Now let's remind everyone STEM is science, technology, engineering, and, and mathematics. And mathematics, okay. Right. So in those fields where... You know, and that, especially in the 80s, that's an act that's at least a little bit ahead of its time. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Because right? women, they, you know, that's a time, I mean, I had, I had female colleagues when I was an undergraduate in the 80s. They were not steered into the sciences. No. Quite, oh, quite, no, no. Quite no, the no. contrary. And so she saw that as a problem, and it has helped hundreds and hundreds of women ever since. So, you know, in the, uh, in the end, I, I think she's sort of impossible to pigeonhole when it comes to these sorts of issues. Okay, so she's impossible to pigeonhole, Professor, but over the course of these two parts we've done on her in the last two weeks, you've made the book an absolute must-read. Well, thank you for that. She's uh, gripping and, and tremendously interesting. How would you sum her up in total? How would I sum her up? I portray her at the end of the day as sort of a tragic figure. And, ah, okay. And by that I mean, here's someone with immense talent. Yeah, 
but trapped, like millions and millions of other women, in a very sexist world that blocked, and in some ways continues to block, ambitious women. Yeah. Especially women who are so obviously talented and so little concerned with hiding their talent. Right. right? Okay. And, and keep in mind, she was often the victim of, a, of just these fierce double standards. Where, sure. You know, where is if, you know, if you're ambitious as a man, you're applauded as a go-getter. But if, admired, you're yeah. as, if you're ambitious as a woman, you're, well, in, 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 insert ugly insult here, right? In other words, yeah, exactly. you're, 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 you know, you're an ice queen or, you know, you're, you're a gold digger or you're a user or you're a B-I-T-C-H or whatever, right? Yeah. And, the, and, the, and the, the behavior might be identical in the two cases. So yeah. she ran afoul of that quite a bit, and I think that's, that's just sad. She obviously should have gone to college. I have no doubt that she would have excelled as an academic, for example, <laughs> for what that's worth. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be overly self-deprecating. But no, I have no doubt that she could have succeeded. She always regretted not having stuck to being a playwright. I yeah, think, I think yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. she saw yeah. her talent was, and she regretted never sticking to that. The very when often when she was reflecting on her career, she expressed a lot of regret about that sort of thing. She should have gone to college, but she married for money and power instead, and so it was really a, a, a Faustian bargain. I think that's uh, that's maybe obvious, but I think that's the way to, to look at it. So she was ambitious, but she was also narcissistic and restless, and she could never settle on one career. That I think is sort of sad. She that made her sad as well. Could could she have been a great playwright? You know, and by the way, and she, by great playwright, she said, "I you know, I, I would have, I would have, if I had won the 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 Nobel Prize for for literature, I would have thought that was successful." So she set the bar bar oh, very very high, high for herself, and you know, and she does she didn't say that she could have done that, but she would have measured that as success. At one point, she actually said, she never wrote an autobiography. She tried a couple times, but she, at one point, she thought she was gonna call her autobiography Confessions of an Unsuccessful Woman. Wow. Yeah. Which wow. I think, if anything, is overly harsh. And partly my argument is, I think one of the reasons she doesn't get as much attention as she might is because I think we are all, myself included, locked into this model of what we might call deep historical figures. In other words, they right. excel at one thing. Right. They right. devote their entire career to it and achieve greatness like, well, Winston Churchill in politics, for example. Right. They are much rarer. But every so often, a figure comes along who's not deep but broad mm -hmm. and does everything well but nothing brilliantly. And I think I would put her in that category. Well, although it sounds like her first three major plays are pretty yeah, brilliant. Yeah, maybe, maybe, and maybe that's why she said that's the one field yeah, that I right, could have excelled right. in. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Absolutely. But I think she, so for breadth of experience, I honestly, I, I, maybe you can come up with someone. I can't come up with someone who's a woman in the American 20th century who has nearly her breadth of experience and breadth, breadth of achievement. So I think she deserves recognition for that. So in other words, I, the tagline would be historical breadth rather than historical depth because such versatility is far rarer and in, in a way, sort of its own achievement, I would say. And, and also why you have the best of all possible subtitles for your biography, which is American Renaissance Woman. Now, Renaissance man or Renaissance person or is, is, an awfully, is an often overused phrase, but she is clearly. Yeah, absolutely. No, and that's, that's why I, I, did, I did choose that title. And by all the way, just for the record, I also partly intend a double meaning which is to say, I believe in some ways, if you look at what she was involved in when she was involved, yeah, she's sort of a woman of the American Renaissance. 
In other oh, words, okay. I in other see. words, I see. by the way, I'm aware of the fact that among American historians, the quote-unquote American Renaissance was in the 19th century. Right. I know that. But if you look at the, the New Deal, World War II, the Cold War, this was, a, this was an era of when the United States became a superpower. Right, world was, renaissance. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and so it's an American renaissance, and I think she was very much a part of that. Well, Professor, you've done it again. You've done it again, as you've done for years now. I think six years you've been on the show. This is this is one of the best, this is certainly one of the best two-parts we've ever done, and, and, and one of the best ever in our history. Well, so, thank you. Buzzkillers, please, again, we'd like to send you this book. Professor Nash wants to personalize it for you. If you're a Patreon member, you, you will get a blog post about it. Please respond, and your, na- your name will get put in the hopper. And as long as you promise to, pu- to promote it on social media, put the cover <laughs> next to your smiling exactly, face. A selfie yeah. with the cover. <laughs> yeah. then, then, then we'll send it to you. But it just remains for me to say thanks so much, Professor, for coming on the show. Again, coming back to the bunker after all this time away because of COVID and everything else. Always a pleasure, just like old times. Well, Buzzkillers, please go to Professor Buzzkill for all the fun. Please rate and review us on your podcast platforms, especially if you're on Apple, if you use Apple Podcasts. It really, really does make a difference. Please follow us on social media. We're at BuzzkillProf across almost all platforms. And we will talk to all of you wonderful people out there next week. 